Welcome to the show, everybody. This is Lost in the Pages podcast, and uh, Isaac is talking to you today, and along with good friend John. Hello. And uh, we today are going to talk about the American West. We're going out west, specifically, or just specifically. Oh, it's like, <laughs> it's like just the general. We of- we are going out west, but we are going really doing a dive into the San Luis Valley. Of Colorado. It might seem a little strange at first, but once I think you follow along with us, you'll realize why we wanted to talk about this particular area of the West. Let's get into it. So, the American West is filled, as we all know, with stories of adventure, heroism, glory, you know, all the dime novels, you know, it's Cowboys and Indians, you know. It's the stuff that made (laughs) you pay attention in history class. Yeah, John Wayne. There's a so many different genres of every type of media has spawned from this. Okay. I was wondering why you yelled John Wayne to start it out with, but now it makes sense. No, that John you Wayne. the sentence. Yeah. <laughs> but along with all of these stories, there's probably even more stories of misfortune, horror, treachery. I mean, you know, I mean it was a rough West. time. How many of the idols of the area are outlaws? Mm-hmm. So this story in particular is one of the latter stories. More about the treachery and definitely the horror. Okay. So, the first victim that we know of was found in March of 1863. The corpse of a man named Franklin, or William, depending on your source, Bruce. I don't know how they get Franklin or William, but I kept seeing different two different names. William. <laughs> Wanklin. <laughs> Wanklin. Oh, no. Let's no, go for William. So... Bruce was found on the banks of a creek near Canyon City, Colorado, a place that we've already covered. We are familiar with because of the state penitentiary that's there that uh, houses a lot of dangerous people. And that was pretty much two years ago that we covered that. Yeah, pretty wild. So yeah, you want to go back? Uh, go back to rumors and confabulation. Bruce was found, like I said, by a creek in near Canyon City. He was found with a single bullet hole in the head. Now, a day later, John Alderman was found shot in a similar manner on his ranch. So, shot in the head, but this time on his own ranch. All right. Two days after this, around 25 miles away near Colorado City, Henry Harkin's body was found with the gunshot wounds. This is just in three days. Does four it matter, days. Does it matter that that third body wasn't shot in the head? Mm, no. Okay. No. It is just shot. Got it. In April, five men were found dead near the town of Fairplay, Colorado. And we talked about fair play before because that was the guy with the was it the, was it was fair play where the guy started getting aggravated because someone took his water oh my god it was up the hill from him yeah. yeah yeah we have talked about fair play before okay yes okay so yeah I don't need to go through the spiel of the fact that I've been to fair play and it's really cool <laughs> it's, yeah it's a pretty town it's not much to do there but it's very pretty so one man had tried to escape from this but was found dead running after he was running down a hill he he was shot twice. And this was really strange. In this case, the man was stripped naked and was dismembered with a tomahawk. How do you know that he got dismembered with a tomahawk? Was well, it just messy because the tomahawk is messy? I was going to say because that yeah. thing's a light weapon, so it'd take a lot of. It, it was messy, so they just assumed that's the type of axe okay. that they that they used. Or they're being mildly, the mildly racist. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No, there is mild racism and overt racism okay. all not, throughout not the mild, series. Not mild. I will put it out there right now. Maybe not mild, subconsciously racist by immediately saying Tom Hawk. And we are talking the 1860s in Wild West. The Civil War was about to happen back east. Hmm. Wild West now, you got the same people, same mindsets. They're from all different parts of the country, so you have the exact same issues. And you add in different types of racism. Because of the different... And it's also that people. was the half the reason the war started, because all the newer territories that were getting added in... Right. If the main fight was over, are you going to be a slave state That's or not a, a slave yeah, state? there's so. a lot of that. So, yeah. So, rumors in the area were that one of the men that had been found dead 
had a crucifix carved into his chest. And this started to become like an MO of the killer. Okay. They started not just having the gunshot wounds, but they were then being, they were coming back to the bodies and carving crucifixes into the bodies. Okay. Now you say crucifix, you just mean a cross a or cross. like a cross. They're actually like drawing, no. stenciling in. <laughs> yeah, the... it's a cross. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> they're doing a cross. <laughs> yeah, they're not doing a, a full body. Or maybe a crucifix designate, designates where on the body. I'm, I'm overthinking it. But... Yes, you're... <laughs> it's, it's, they've carved a cross okay. onto them. Another man, though, not only had the crucifix, he also had his head pulverized by a rock. Okay, so he just got smushed. Yeah. <laughs> so speculations as to who or what could be brutally murdering so many men ran rampant throughout the Colorado Territory, because it was territory at this time, not state. Mm. Some thought that it was the work of Confederates, actually, killing men that were Union-backed, or okay. backed the Union. While, because Colorado was going to start off as a Union, it was much more in the hands of the Union than Confederate mm-hmm. Colorado was. Others... Kind of like what we were hinting at with the Tomahawk discussion. Others blamed indigenous tribes of the area okay. on these murders. No one up to this point had lived to even tell you what kind of, what is doing this at all. These people, every single one of these cases, the people are just being found dead. Oh, okay, so there, yes, there's no... I mean, that is the only speculation. Is like, we have no clue. It could be Confederates, it could be indigenous tribes, it could be anyone. We have no idea who's doing this or what's doing this. Okay. That is, until late April, when there was a break in the case. A man named Edward Metcalf was leading a team of oxen along a lonely trail near Fairplay when he was taken by surprise and shot in the chest. Luckily for Metcalf, a bundle of mail, which contained a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, (laughs) (laughs) was stuffed into his coat pocket, and it saved him. It saved his life because the bullets, that thing was so thick, the bullets stopped. And paperback then was probably heftier too. So. Oh, absolutely. So he was he was knocked, like physically rocked. Back down. But he was not, it was not, he was going to leave a bruise, not through his chest. Oh, it's still going to hurt. Man. If you're wearing armor, it hurts to get hit. But Now another shot was fired, but by this time Metcalf was bouncing down the trail because he, he got like caught up in the stirrup of his team mm-hmm. of his horse and he was kind of being dragged at this point a little bit uh, that, that would hurt after you got shot and then you're bouncing around and yeah yeah so a nearby rancher though heard the commotion and came running to help it was this unnamed rancher who was the first person to actually get a glimpse as to the shooter he saw two men in the mountains on a ledge above them mm. and they were running away he would later tell authorities that the two men, one was much taller than the other, but both were dark-complexioned, and, most likely, of Mexican descent. So, not the Confederates, not the indigenous tribes, the third party involved. The people that had already been living there. The for people that have been living there for years. It's the same with the indigenous tribes. But ever since... I mean, there's a long history there that's... The Mexican Empire owned this for, like, a certain stretch. Yeah, and then you had... Weird to say Mexican Empire, but that's what they called themselves at one point. Yeah, yeah. that's what it was. And so you had just a lot of... um, Which they always... In that time frame, it was the Hispanos and the Anglos. Mm -hmm. That's why everybody... That's the two groups, but and then it just even... As it is with every part of the U.S., the Native Americans were just pushed to the side as not even... Yeah, just everyone was like, well, they definitely don't have rights. Whereas the Hispanos on paper had rights because they signed a treaty that gave them still the land rights that they had. It was mm. just now they were had flipped over to U.S. lands. They, yeah, they just... Yeah. But their lands were still supposed to be held intact. The U.S. was like, yeah, of course they'll be left intact. And then they're like, hey, buddy, there's Prime Farm right over there. Just, just set up camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll be protected. That's basically what happened all throughout. <laughs> but these two men were described as Hispanos. So, officially, the hunt for the bloody Espinosas was on. Before we get any further, let's back up a little bit and talk a bit about the, the killers. Okay, let's get into who and what they are. January of 1863, months before the murders began, which, two months before the murders began, Twelve soldiers led by Nicholas Holt left Fort Garland 
which is located in the San Luis Valley mm. of the Colorado Territory, to arrest two, two men 35 miles away in a small village called San Rafael or San Judas de Tadillo. Depends on which source again. Mm-hmm. Both of these, San Rafael is a unincorporated community yeah. right now. Uh, no, I don't know what the other one is. Uh, I think it's probably San Rafael. Did you say these were U.S. Army or was this just local militia? This is U.S. Army, but at that time it's it is kind of like whoever your commanding officer is has to take a lot of their own initiative. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. type of deal because they just they just don't have the communication. But they send these twelve men to arrest them at most likely San Rafael, which is located on the. On the banks of the Conejos River, mm. these two men. Hold on, I was going to say you should. Yeah. We should. Before talked. I get into before I get into their names and just the names of the places, I will admit that I am from Kentucky. I don't. As many times I've been to Colorado, I love the state, but I am sorry if I butcher the pronunciation of some of these names. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to try my best. The only one I took down to ask beforehand was how do you say San Luis? Yeah. So <laughs> so these two men were Felipe Nario Espinosa. Okay. And then there was Jose, I can guess Vivian, but it might be different. It's, uh, again. I go with Vivian. It works better. Vivian Espinosa as well. Felipe was the older brother. Okay. Of the two. Okay. <laughs> And I'm going to say this now. This story of things that we've talked about on in a podcast form, this story is the most reminiscent of the Notorious Harps. Mm. Both in the fact that we have, these are considered the two earliest serial killers in the in Western United States history. Okay. Notorious Harps were considered the first serial killers in United States history. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they did happen like 100 years apart, close to 100 years apart, but this... Uh, story just has a lot of parallels, even to the point of where the Harps were called brothers, but they were actually cousins. The, this, sometimes people call them cousins, but they're actually brothers. So, yeah, it's, just how, <laughs> it's word of mouth getting passed yeah. down. Yeah, there's nothing super official. And, yeah. So it's hard to get an exact account of what happened this day because there's so many different stories surrounding these two. And that's something else I want to touch on while we'll, while we are still early in this. This story is so filled with myth and folklore, and it's just not crystal clear. No part of this is crystal clear. The entire story is muddy. I'm just going to say that now. I've tried to parcel through as the best I could, but there's so many different sources that tell wildly different stories. But that's how history is to a certain point. Like, yeah. That's that's how stuff gets hashed out as people take the time to sit there and Look That's true, and so, nobody has really taken the time to parcel through the exact truth of this story. It's not ever had, it's had minor historical research done, but nothing that is like a deep, full re- full study that has money backing it. Which It's like the whole saying goes, like, history's winning by the winners. Absolutely. If the winners don't know or don't care enough about it, there's exactly. a lot of stuff that's, that's not going to get written down. And that's exactly what happened here, is that the winners of this... Kind of just decide. I think they saw it probably as a black mark on the territory and like as a it's a deterrent to getting more settlers, mm-hmm. which they were trying to attract people. So I felt there was very much like a I wouldn't say go as far as say a cover up, but the story that emerged was was like crazy during the time in the in the tabloids of the time. Newspaper wrote all about it. As the mur- murders were happening. But once they caught who it was, they had like a little celebration. Everybody was happy. And then it's like, that didn't happen. Now we're done with that. Yeah. Move along. And the story they told is of two bloodthirsty, just not even, can you even call them human? I mean, also, if you think about it, most of the history is written by what filtered back east. By the time it got all the way back to the That's east true. coast, it was basically a sentence blurb of this yeah. happened. Yeah. And that's all they got. It yeah. got heavy write-ups in it from the Denver newspaper, which Denver had already started to become the the major city mm-hmm. of the area. Um, so there was a Denver newspaper writing about it, and then there was a newspaper that was in, that's in Alamosa in the San Luis Valley. Mm-hmm. And they were writing about it, but the one in Alamosa actually gives a different differing account from the one in Denver. So there's just so much. And the real truth is going to lay somewhere in this murky depth and it's just kind of up to us to kind of perceive our own 
understanding of this story. I'm going to try to give it as many angles as I can throughout this. And I feel like we could lay that over pretty much any subject we've ever covered. A lot of the we've... subjects, yeah. It is open to interpretation. And we're just I'm just trying to give you the facts the best I can. Yep. Again, this is coming from a very biased point of view. But what can be gleaned from historical records is that both brothers lived with their wives and children and extended family in this town of I'm going to go with San Rafael. Felipe, believed to have been the shorter of the two, standing, well, he was supposedly shorter than five foot six because the tall one was five foot six. So he's short. Okay. Because they said there's a significant difference too. So he's a small man, Felipe is. He was most likely 39 years old, and Jose, his brother, was standing at five foot six, and he would have been 26 years old. Okay. Now, this is all according to census data. Felipe is said to have been known for his overly large jaw and a jack-o'-lantern type grin. And if he's that short, it's kind of creepy because he's like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the whole thing sounded very creepy. (laughs) But not much is known about the brothers or their families. Felipe was most likely born, and most likely born in either New Mexico, near the present-day community of El Rito, which is near Santa Fe and Taos, New Mexico, Or he was born in Veracruz, Mexico, which is pretty far away. Mm -hmm. His parents were Maria Gertrudis Chavez and his father, Pedro Ignacio Espinosa. Okay. So you had these two, his parents. That's known. But what is not known is exactly where he lived. He most likely lives in New Mexico. He's most likely from New Mexico. Some people think that his parents moved to New Mexico and he came with them. uh, But it. Most likely, they're from Mexico, or New Mexico. Mm -hmm. A Mexican census in 1845 listed Felipe and his brother Jose as residents of the New Mexico Territory. So, at least by 1845, they were in New Mexico. Were New Mexico and Arizona Territory separate back then? Yeah. Okay. They Well, they were all, they were separate, but they both were obtained by the United States in the Mexican-American War. Okay. So, they were... The whole goal of the Mexican-American War was to drive, because they kind of settled things in Texas a little bit. They were driving now into New Mexico to solidify the Colorado Territory. Mm -hmm. Drive into New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, and then take California. Okay, okay. They had already started laying the seeds in California, but they wanted to do a full military push because the seeds that were planted in California was from John C. Fremont, who had the military backing, but he was just like, he wanted it to be an explorer, not a general. He wanted to just go around and be like, I claim this land for the United States. Yeah. And then just be like, okay, I'm not fighting, though. <laughs> that, make, that makes a lot more sense about Because even in AP, all we ever get taught in school is alimony, and that's about it. Like, yeah. bringing in the Republic of Texas. Yeah. But, like, when I was reading up about it, I didn't know this, the Mexican-American War was actually the first amphibious landing by the U.S. military. Because they got tired of dealing with stuff up in America. So they were like, yeah, we're just going to land down here by Mexico City. And I, well, not by Mexico City, on the coast. And then walk into Mexico City and start stuff. So that's actually the stories of uh, Felipe and his family being from Veracruz. They, this is coming from an angle that the killings, that the future killings were a vendetta that he had against the Americans because they were shelling Veracruz from the sea. Mm. And he had, uh, his like house was destroyed and he was like one of the only, like his whole extended family was wiped out. Or like oh, okay. Six of them, I think they said, six extended family were wiped out by the Americans during that attack on Veracruz. But I don't think that's that happens because the census data shows him being in Mexico in 1845. Okay. And... I just think the years, it it just doesn't match. I don't think that tracks that story. Yeah. So with all of this, this is just to paint a picture. A lot of what we're talking about here is just to paint a picture. In the 1850s, the pair showed up in an American census now from the same area that they were. So near Taos and Santa Fe. And then again, they popped up in the 1860s. But at some point before their arrest, the two brothers' firearm and ammunition were accounted for by the government. Because that's what they, the government census start to also take into account how many weapons their newly obtained citizens have. <laughs> <laughs> this is like even before like c- c- serial numbers and stuff. So it's like, yeah, they're collect. 
pretty obviously trying to say, like, okay, if we had a rebellion on our hands, what are we looking at here? Because, I mean, if you think about it, that's a substantial piece of property to own back then. As a Absolutely. Like, yeah, you barely had a house and a rifle. Yeah, especially yeah. when you're out there. I mean, to have um, significant ammunition, it's, it's... it's Yeah. Well, and Felipe did have some decent amount of firearms and ammunition. Because if you think about it, it's freaking lead back then. So they have to transport it over land to get there, so... Yeah, that's true. I, it, I never like thought of that. But I mean, I there is an infrastructure there from Mexi- when they were Mexican. But this is still before trains. But it's yes, your trains are coming into the West at this time. Yeah, they not they're, they're not there because at this time though, the main trail for the United States was the mm-hmm. Santa Fe Trail to get down to this area, and that mm-hmm. would left from Independence, Missouri, same place as Oregon Trail left from, but where the Oregon Trail winds northwest the whole time. Mm-hmm. The San Fe Trail winds southwest the whole time. So you still go through Kansas, but different. You're on the Santa Fe Trail, you're going through Kansas, but then you're winding through southern Colorado into Santa Fe, which is northern New Mexico. So you're hitting. Um, that's the this whole area that we're talking about is influenced by the Santa Fe Trail. Yeah. Which is now at this time mostly being run by people on mules. Mm. That's who's trading <laughs> because they found so that mules point, are better. Yeah. On the on the trail than horses are actually because yeah. they don't need as much sustenance, and this would lead into the Camel Corps episode back in the day. Yes, so exactly. Go. That's the whole reason the Camel Corps was experimented with out here because they're like we don't have anything else, and they don't need water. So with their firearms that they have, the government recorded them as having a carbine rifle mm-hmm. and a half pound of ammunition. Between the two of them, though. So, only one of them had a gun. But they did have a half pound of ammo. So, basically, like, a couple, maybe a magazine or two worth today. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's like, still not a lot. <laughs> no. Now, the most likely reason behind the arrest of the brothers seems to be that in late 1862, a priest from Taos told authorities about a freight runner named Juan Gonzalez who was beaten and robbed in the mountains. One story tells it that Gonzalez was stopped on a road by masked thieves and then tied to his wagon. The robbers took his horses, goods, and were off. Gonzalez then told the priests that even though they were masked, they were the Espinosas, no doubt about it. Hmm. And he said there was an unknown third assailant. It was their mule and another mask. <laughs> well, thus, the soldiers were sent from Fort Garland to round up the two alleged marauders. That's one of the stories. There's many different stories. But let's just stick with this one for now. To try to arrest the two without making a scene, Hote pretended to attempt to recruit Jose Vivian for the Civil War. He was saying, let's sign up for the Union. And we're going to go put a stop to him. But Jose was said, uh, just come back tomorrow morning. I, I need to talk about this with my family. They didn't return the, return the next morning, though. After saying, sure, we'll come back. Instead, he came back five days with his full 12 soldiers. When they did return, their approach was no longer, you want to sign up for the Civil War. Deputy Marshal George Austin just rounded the two brothers up at their houses and started holding them by gunpoint. Okay. So, like, warrantless just showed up and like, hey. Yeah, it really was just, oh, they're both home right now. Let's just get them. That's it's what it seemed to wow. be. While he was holding the two up, Hote who was with him at the time. So he came in, you know, the same guy who was asking about the Civil War, now he's just coming in with a gun. He left to go gather the rest of the men who were searching for the guys elsewhere in town. Because for some reason, you know, you need 12 men with uh, with firearms instead of two to get two guys for an alleged attack yeah. that you're not even questioning. So when the full company gets gets there, they come upon a very chaotic scene. According to Austin, in a letter he wrote later to Rocky Mountain News, under the pseudonym A. <laughs> <laughs> and of course my head immediately read that as E-H, and I'm Canadian. <laughs> oh, hey, hey. I don't know why. So the brothers, the brothers had beaten Austin back to where he was outside of the house. And, quote, procured arms, guns, 
pistols, and bows and arrows, and commenced firing the arrows from the doors and windows at him. Eventually, Hote ordered the house to just be set on fire, at which point the Espinosa brothers, quote, made a rush out of the door, discharging a shower of arrows. <laughs> How do you do it? if there's just two of them? Is that, that a, that's like a, a dribble? Yeah, just two of them. Unless they're like literally holding like fists. Unless like, if they are just master archers. Just video game type yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they are level 99 in Skyrim archery. Like seriously, like there's like no, there's no time between their hand and a quiver. Just freaking <laughs> hilarious. Well, this becomes, quickly becomes a comedy of errors. Hote proceeded to fire all charges from one pistol without hitting either brother. After which he pulled out another pistol, which then wouldn't stay cocked. So he <laughs> he threw the gun on the ground and it proceeded to fire <laughs> and grazed his forehead. I've never even thought about a hammer not in one While Hote is doing this, yeah. while he's shooting himself literally in the head, the brothers actually killed one of the soldiers with their arrows. Oh. Neither of the brothers sustained any injury. They continued to run. <laughs> Austin chased the Espinosas across the Conejos River, but his his horse tripped and fell, which resulted in Austin breaking his leg. <laughs> so the other soldiers continued chasing the Espinosas till the Espinosas were well ahead of them and well hidden in the San Juan Mountains, which is the western flank of the San Luis Valley. Okay, so they... Yeah, they got out of there. <laughs> I've just, I've never even heard that your hammer not wanting to stay calm. <laughs> I've never heard of that. And to <laughs> just imagining this whole scenario breaking out, I guess, I guess that it, those revolvers were still primitive at that point. But because we're, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not up, to, we're not up to the like reconstruction and era afterward level. Calls. Yeah, so like these yeah, are like no, the old time true. navy. Revolvers. That's very true. Still, it's, it's bad. Because, uh, yeah, oh, man. And especially imagine he has a rain of arrows coming upon him by the two men that were trying to Honestly, hit 12 guys. Arrows are probably scarier than bullets at that point because you're just like, no, nah, because you're just, They're not scarier than bullets. You're having to keep an eye on it as you're trying to shoot so you can't get a fall. Sure, but if you're just getting shot out, shot at, you have a lead But if ball. it's enough arrows coming from two people to be considered a shower. Well, I think they're exaggerating because they're... Completely incompetent. <laughs> I think there were just like one arrow. Obviously, one arrow hit a guy. I think it hit that guy, and the rest of the people went, "Oh no!" And that's when those just ran. Just well, probably also goes back to his level of training. <laughs> yeah, you just hand a couple guys guns. That's yeah. They're yeah. very much, very much like yeah, as, the Espinosa has their had their stuff together, and they were yeah. And there's a lot of different stories about the Espinosas and how they, what they did before all of this. Because this story that I've just told had puts them as uh, like horse thieves in 1862. Mm-hmm. Another story that I saw was that they were marauders, just like going doing things, criminal acts all around the San Juan and mm-hmm. mountains and San Luis Valley and the Sangre de Cristo mountains. For years, for like a, a decade at least, before all of this. And then another story just paints them as just being ranchers, just minding their business. So, and that all of this, they basically got caught up in this because uh, of like just misunderstandings and things from the military. There's one very sympathetic View the sympathetic of the take, the sympathetic take, like, makes it sound like the like the modern day Hollywood retelling of it when they're trying to like mangum. The retelling of the Espinosa, the sympathetic view of the Espinosas is that Espin- Felipe Espinosa is a killer Robin Hood. Okay, that he is exacting Mexico's revenge. So they were highwaymen in the name. Okay, in the name of the good fight, they were killing those who took. They're just running, running from the Spaniards. <laughs> that's one telling that's the very sympathetic view which is told by the like great great grandson of Felipe Espinosa okay something like that he tells that version and I'll get to that version and exactly I do think there's some kind of great because I don't buy this story 
And even if I do buy this story, the soldiers still look bad here. Not only are they incompetent, but they're just setting fire to the house for no reason. They just barged in there. Well, I'm also thinking setting fire to the house, isn't this more mud brick type stuff? Than- right. Whereas I guess every, every roof is, yeah, is always so, going to yeah. be fast. It's going to be the roof, yeah. Yeah. So, I, we'll get there. The soldiers, after chasing uh, the Espinosas into the San Juan Mountains, they eventually returned to Fort Garland. And Fort Garland's on the easternmost side. It's right on the southern foothills of the Sangre de Cristos, easternmost side of the San Luis Valley. Uh, San Juan Mountains are on the western side, because San Luis Valley is a huge alpine valley, mm-hmm. which is very rare. But it's at uh, over a mile. It's like 5,000 some feet at the yeah. lowest point, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, and at times, I think it's over 7,000 feet. Yeah. So, that's the valley. And then you have the massive mountain ranges on either side of it, which created the valley. Um, and those are the San Juan and the Sangre de Cristos. But like so, you said, it's kind of a desert, badlands type thing. Yeah. And it gets water from being that in the uh, basin where all the water just goes in and either goes into the groundwater or evaporates. Mm. So it's, I mean, it's basically like Mongolia or something over there yeah. in terms of dryness and wind. And yeah. You can live there, but it's a, it is tough. Yeah. It's a tough life um, to try to get, I mean, modern day, it's, you know, you, it's, oh, well, it's, it's much more just doable. all off grid homesteaders over there now. You just, so there's, if them. you're not living in Alamosa and you're living directly in the San Luis Valley, mm-hmm. like the heart of it, then you're probably an off grid homesteader. <laughs> that just kind of is the way. Because it, it that whole area is is uh, as I've been through there a couple times now, and that whole area is really cool to see and to just be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it's a lot of nothing for, and, and it's wild because no matter where you are in the valley, you're going to see one of those mountain ranges. I think that was my my main takeaway when I saw pictures. I was just like. This is beautiful when you're looking up at the mountains, but like I need trees around me. There's nothing. There's it's no scrub. Trees. It's scrub. It is full sagebrush. Yeah, and just harsh, stubby little things. It, there's a reason prairie dogs love the area. Yeah, which you do get that, and that's always fun. But then now I'm just going back and thinking. So now you will know it's setting their houses in right. that when they're firing a shower of arrows, they're doing it into just plain <laughs> flat land. There's no. Yeah, they're not in the mountains. They're not running off into a bunch of trees. They literally have to run across the plains to get mm-hmm. to the yeah. river to go up the hill. Yeah. So all right. Now again, this is the whole reason for the eventual murders that come to be is that they chase them out of their home and now they're like, oh, so mad. this is before all the. This murders is before, you listed right before okay. the murders. Okay. This is this is probably like November to December 1862, and then the murders start. This is yeah, basically this is winter of 1862 going to 1863, and then, then the murders start in March. Okay, so it's about a two month window there where they are gone from the map, and then they pop back up killing people. Gotcha. Now, according to other. Stories like I've kind of hinted at throughout this episode. The Espinosa family was killed back in Mexico. That's if you believe that part. Now, if you, the other version here, the Espinosas were highly upset that local officials did nothing about white or, as they were calling it, Anglo set squatters on their land. Because the Espinosas, in this version of the story, actually, their his parents were uh, ranchers. This was like a family-owned ranch for years near uh, New Mexico. Squatters came and just kind of plopped down there because Taos and Santa Fe became a pretty quick hub because of the Santa Fe Trail mm-hmm. for Anglo settlers. There's so many mountain men that just decided to call Taos their home, including Kit Carson, who's the most well-known trapper and mountain man out there. Carson, any Carson City you see out there on the map is His named after yeah. Kit Carson. See, I never would have known that, and we grew up hearing Kit Carson all yeah, the time. Yeah, Kit Carson is from Madison County, Kentucky. Yeah. So, never yeah. would have known that. Yeah. It's pretty wild. But he set up shop in Taos hmm. as the many a, a settler. So, with that, they were upset because the officials did nothing about it. The newly, newly owned American officials did nothing about it. The Espinosas, I guess, then moved it further into the San Luis Valley, up into the Colorado Territory. There, they still had a large amount of acreage, but the government was in, continuing to encourage settlers to move in, so they had squatter issues there as well. 
So basically, they just had squatter issues no matter where they went because the U.S. was coming. Now, we'll get in a little bit into the war before I pick back up on this sympathetic view of Espinosa. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in February of 1848 redrew the map in the favor of the United States of America, and with it, the settlers coming from the east now had legal rights to the new territory in the eyes of the Americans. And, as has happened far too many times in our history, the United States turned a blind eye on the people who are currently living on the land. Mm Mm-hmm. Because their people wanted that land. So with this version of events, the Espinosas, it's really sad. It's a really sad version of events. And again, very sympathetic to Felipe Espinosa. In 1861, American soldiers had, for no real reason, had come in onto his ranch and had raped Felipe's wife, Maria, and his daughters, who at the time were both teenagers. One of them, I think the youngest was around 14 or 12. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And they forced him to watch all of it while they did this. His wife would eventually pass away from her wounds mm-hmm. from the attack. Now, again, in this account, his sister had also been raped. This then led to Jose... Felipe's brother, killing the soldier that was responsible for raping their sister. And that, and this is the reason that the soldiers came to the house to arrest them, and not the story about the priest and the ox driver. Uh, okay, see, that makes much more sense, because it's just, yeah, that's the Game of Thrones answer with it, and stuff still went down, so. Yeah. So, no matter what version you tell of the story, on this, we can all agree that the soldiers burned the house down mm-hmm. and took full custody of the land, leaving the Espinosa family that was left on the land completely destitute. They had no home, they had no property, and uh, they had no value, no valuables because it was all burned in the house. Mm-hmm. So they really were completely left, and they just had to figure it out. While on the run in the San Luis Valley, a which, again, as we said, actually at times it can reach 8,000 feet elevation. And it essentially does make up that border of New Mexico and Colorado. Felipe Espinosa had a vision while on this alpine desert. Okay. He had a vision. And this might explain the crucifix. Felipe's vision came from the Virgin Mary herself. She had some surprising things to say to him. She told him, to kill, the Virgin Mary told Felipe Espinosa to kill 100 white men for every member of the family that he lost. Which, again, as I said, was six. So he wanted, his goal was to kill 600 Americans. And he took his mission very seriously. <laughs> well, I don't know just how true that this whole thing is, too. People would later say that he had a diary. And within this diary, revealed the mind of a madman. Basically, is the way people put it. That I was going to say, he's reminded me, I can't even remember the name of the the one that shared the cell with Ed Kemper after he got out the cell that shared the same block as Ed Kemper that yeah. he went crazy and it was telling him if he went and killed around a bunch of people around California, like mm-hmm. that there wouldn't be an earthquake. That's what it's right. reminding me of. Yeah, yeah. So it, it gets to a point when you look at, you know, when you go on into true crime things Mm -hmm. and you look at different types of killers and the psyche of different types of killers. Felipe Espinoza checks a few of the boxes. Obviously he has multiple people that he's killed, which would lead people to, he's always called a serial killer, Mm -hmm. but it's all within one year. He does take a break. He does have a period where he takes a break, Mm -hmm. but then he picks it back up and both times he's killing He's killing double-digit people both times, and they both are short bursts. It sounds like two small sprees, two spree killers combined. So yeah. Just, yeah. And not only is Felipe Espinosa the serial killer, but also his brother, Jose, is as well. Okay. Because they're doing everything in tandem. Felipe's just the leader. So, but this just, like you said, it leans into the narrative of him being, or like a modern-day 
It's vigilante, just revenge. Yeah, yeah. So it's some not, it's not normal, silly, crazy serial killer stuff. There's a yeah. Some stories is that he's doing everything for revenge because one thing that also every source can agree on is that the bodies, the bodies of the men found dead, never had like their valuables taken from them. If they did, it would be like there maybe like some loose money, you know, not much. Mm-hmm. They would leave a lot of things on the body. They would leave. Mostly, except for that one individual who was for some reason stripped naked. But the other times, they would leave their clothing, leave all their valuables on them, except for maybe some stuff. So they were just so people got even more confused, saying from their perspective, there's like, okay, people are just being killed and not even for their money. Because back in the day, you didn't have ten pairs of pants. If you killed somebody, and yeah, you're like, I would have took ten pants. That's been but that that being said too stuff's more craftsman made back then so it'd have been like oh that was made by so and so down here in Alamosa and well, that's true tied but back to I just don't think they they just didn't seem to care no okay. it seemed to be that they really were in one of the very few cases of this kind of thing they really were just killing to kill mm. they weren't trying to take anything they weren't they weren't gaining anything by these killings other than just someone being dead so, with all of that in mind, Felipe Espinosa was a rampaging monster. <laughs> no matter how sympathetic you want to look at it. Yeah. He was killing people, because he traveled up to Fair Play and to these areas that are well north of where his household was. However he was perceived by locals, um, some sources say that the Hispanio locals, he was a legend. They loved him. For what he was doing, they they were like he's the he's fighting for us because we can't. So he's and even though he wasn't doing any of that, they're putting that on him, and then yeah. that gets sent down the line. And but again, so. I just have I just want to stress that he is killing though people that are just working. They're just doing their thing. They're not doing. They haven't done anything. To he's average, not killing soldiers. It's average folk. Yeah, he's yeah. Not, he's he's not killing easy. ranchers and just miners and you know just people that aren't harming him. Prospectors probably over miners, but yeah. Well, they have mine, they have oh, okay. mine boom towns okay. all, all throughout Colorado, so even at that point. So several versions of this story depict Espinosa as the murderous Robin Hood that we've talked about. But these versions claim that after his ranch was destroyed, Felipe and Jose ran into other families that had land taken from them by the American settlers and government officials, and Espinosas would kill those men and give the land back to the Hispanian men. Mm. Which I don't think that happened. No, that that, <laughs> that just sounds like a East Coast like justification as they keep pushing <laughs> yeah. and like manifest destiny type crap. Like, yeah. So two wrongs don't make a right on this. Uh, no matter what version of the story you tell, and Espinosa's certainly earned the nickname of Bloody. During their murder spree, Felipe began journaling and even writing poems, as I kind of mentioned earlier. But yeah, he wrote poems. Um, he also wrote letters, and in one letter which was sent to Colorado's territorial governor, John Evans. Felipe wrote, this is a quote, I'm not going to do an accent. (laughs) The Americans ruined our families. They took everything in our house. These were the reasons we had to go out and kill Americans. Revenge for the infamies committed on our families. Pardon us for what we have done and give us our liberty so that no officer will have anything to do with us. For also in killing, one gains his liberty. I am aware that you know of some I have killed, but of others you don't know. It is a sufficient number, however. Ask if any other two men have killed as many as the Espinosas. We have killed 32. Hmm. So, I mean, there's... Yeah. So that's pretty... Um, that's pretty direct. Now, he is asking for pardons. And he also, in another letter written to John Evans, he asked for uh, significant acreage. Did he use the term Americans, or did that just get added in ad hoc later? He he used the term okay. Americans. This is the yeah supposed no again that. supposed yeah. letter that he because I can't say for sure certain that he wrote this letter to him or if that was just drafted up by an American after the fact. Okay, to make him look worse, it's. I would say he probably did write it, but there is still question, and maybe you don't agree with me. You know, it's that's what's so fascinating about this story is there's so many conclusions you can come to. But now, 
Felipe also swore to John Evans, the territorial governor, that he would kill 600 Anglos. He had killed 32 out of 600, basically is what he was saying. Okay, so he was like... Yeah, he's yeah. keeping count, and he's going to kill 600. Yeah, there's... Yeah, is it, you're talking about... You look at a vigilante way, do you look at it as a yeah. modern... Not, I'm not going to say modern true crime, but just true crime way. Like, yeah. I don't like that aspect, but yeah, it is kind of... It's, it's, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I must back up one more time and tell a crucial story in the Felipe Espinosa frame that, again, is not known to be fully based in reality, but if it is, then it is quite telling. Now, according to some, around a decade before the killing spree began, Felipe was quite down and out on his luck with the ladies, possibly because of his jack-o'-lantern grin. Yeah. <laughs> He decided to take a page out of the Notorious Harps books, and he kidnapped two sisters from his village in New Mexican territory. Okay. One of these sisters was his eventual wife, Maria, who was 17 at the time of her kidnapping. The other sister was younger than Maria. She was 11. Hmm. In this origin story, Felipe raped Maria. No account was known about the 11-year-old. So I don't know if he did with her as well. But he told their father that he was going to take Maria for his wife. Her father was said to have been so terrified by Felipe that he essentially handed over his daughter to him. Felipe did, however, return the 11-year-old to her father. All right. Yeah. Again, it just sounded Game of Thrones stuff. <laughs> He was uh, successful in this caveman-esque marriage. (laughs) (laughs) And Maria would go on to give him three children. Three daughters, in fact. Unfortunately, there are no accounts that go into at all how she felt about the matter. Mm -hmm. What kind of abuses she went through. Uh, Nothing about that. But it is safe to say that this woman led a hard and uh, difficult life. Oh yeah, they didn't have anything. Yeah. So, with all of that in mind, the Espinosas continued their murderous rampage throughout south-central Colorado, and it prompted the governor, John Evans, and local authorities to take it up a notch and take down the Espinosas. On May 9, 1863, eight deputized men on the hunt for the bloody Espinosas discovered a trail along Four Mile Creek, where they discovered two horses hobbled by a thicket. The hunters lay in wait, and sure enough, Jose, Vivian, Espinoza walked onto the scene to get the horses ready to ride. One of the men began firing at Jose, who took a hit on his left side. Jose rolled on his side and had his weapon out, firing in the men's direction, but he was eventually shot in the face. Thus, the bloody Espinozas were down to one brother. Felipe managed to escape the men after peering on a cliff above them, firing at them, and then running. The remaining Espinosa, Felipe, decided that he had to lay low for a while, and his trail completely disappeared. And this is the cooldown period that he had. Okay, so but out of the two periods, it was the bloody Espinosas in the first period, and the second period, it's the bloody Espinosa. You would think. Oh, so he goes and gets him up on He him. recruits. Okay, see, now we talked back and forth the entire way. I don't know if you're wanting to wait on this, but now I'm just thinking of them as the harps. Yeah. This is a different version. They very much are. They're the West Harps. Okay, yeah, because we started this off making them kind of vigilante-esque, and then you said that, yeah, now I'm just thinking. Felipe is much is more of a leader than either of the Harps. Yes, yes. The Harps were much more of a tandem. I guess Makaisha was the leader, but they were still much more of a, uh, a true duo. Felipe was the brains of the operation okay. behind the bloody Espinosas. And some... Sources tried to always call them call the Espinosa as a gang. There was a the Espinosa gang because the one story had a third assailant on the when they stole the horses in, in the wagon. They probably had a little short round and around with them out there. <laughs> well, no one really knows for sure, but they no one else was ever found. Like this, when Jose died, it was just him and Felipe. Okay, so I think it was just the two of them doing all this. I don't think they had someone else. But we'll get to how his recruiting visits went. Now, his first visit back home since all this began was quite a shock to the system as he found his uh, children. Of course, his wife was dead. 
but he found his children and remaining family in a state of shambles. It was during one of these trips home that Felipe Espinosa found his new right-hand man. Out with Jose, in with Julian, or Julian, I yeah. suppose. Julian. I thought you were going to say in with Alfred Packer, and I was just like, oh, <laughs> taking a look Alfred Packer, it's in. No. Uh, the cannibal himself, that would be a great, that'd be a great duo, Felipe Espinosa and Alfred Packer. Alfred Packer actually doesn't have the tact for Felipe. Mm-hmm. Felipe is much more effective. Alfred Packer literally ate a bunch of people and then just had like bits of hair stuck to his teeth while people were like, did you eat those guys? Like, no. We're, we're trying to make him into little <laughs> fantasy gangs. And it's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't work. Anyway, so Felipe Espinosa found his 14-year-old cousin, Julian. 14 years old. It is not known exactly and how. He's 39? He's 39. Okay. He's is recruited as 14-year-old cousin. So there's the short round I just said. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but he's now deputized as an official bloody Espinosa. Okay. <laughs> Not much, though, is known about just how much Julian participated in the subsequent murders that happened when Felipe brought him aboard. Because it is a thing, though, once Felipe got Julian, the murders started appearing again. He was drifting around the San Luis Valley, hiding throughout the summer. Once the temperature started to drop and he's, people were kind of started to cool on him a bit, he got back out there with Julian and went more into the north now at this point. He was okay. hanging around Canyon City and uh, Fairplay, kind of hitting this corridor through there. All right. So Julian was with Felipe throughout every murder that happened in the autumn of 1863. And the word was getting around that it was happening again. The killings kept coming, with the details becoming more and more gruesome. The bloody crucifix that had appeared on only a couple of the previous victims were now on every victim. Sometimes the crucifix would not be carved into their chest. It would be a bullet hole that they then made a cross of twigs and shoved into the bullet hole. Mm. Yeah, a little more creative. A little artsy, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> a little art project for them. Very gruesome. Very much awful. Much more symbolic, I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it was It was less... Um, it is it is less brutal. It's still awful, but it's, yeah, it yeah. is less brutal than literally hacking a cross into someone. They're just already making the grave marker for him. Yeah, so basically. Yeah. So the people of Colorado were under, understandably in a frenzy. Unless it's like Felipe Espinosa's vampire slayers going in these... <laughs> sticking stakes into their hearts. Yeah. <laughs> So many of the Colorado settlers were too scared to even travel from town to town or to get off their ranch at all. And they were scared of what lurked on the mountain passes. Things had gotten out of control and something had to be done about the devilish toothy grinned killer at Felipe Espinosa and his young accomplice Julian. That's when the army got involved and pulled out the big guns. It is here that we will leave you all to conclude the first part of our a loose San Luis Valley series. Next time, we will get into who the army got to track down the elusive Wild West killers. So, the guy that's going to be like the proto-Texas Ranger type whatever going on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. The tracker extraordinaire. Okay. We will get to him and uh, a lot more on the next episode to conclude with all of this. Uh, to wrap this up in a nice little bow. Uh, but we will leave you here for a little cliffhanger for now. We'll see you next week for the conclusion. All right, love y'all. Peace. Peace.